This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I'm Christy Schreiber, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Schreiber, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. And this week, we're not discussing books per se, we're discussing engravings. (laughs) Some of the most famous I know from the songs of innocence and experience created by the engraver, poet, artist, and uh, likely even musician, William Blake. And two works by the same name, The Chimney Sweeper. And Christy, uh, what an unusual human being William Blake was, and he's still so popular and relevant. And I saw on Google that in uh, 2002, the BBC conducted a poll to see who the residents of the UK considered to be the greatest Britons of all time, and he came in ranked at number 38. Woo-hoo! Yeah, I mean, it's hard to imagine a poet ranking on a list like that. And, uh, of course, ironically, he died basically in an utter anonymity. I mean, that's quite an upgrade. Well, it is. But truly, he is remarkable and also really a quite strange human being. And I'm thrilled to be discussing him. Uh, but before we do, I have to know. Tell me more about the list. Who else was on it? <laughs> well... Winston Churchill was number one. Probably not surprised by that. I uh, I guess nothing like defeating Hitler to get you to the top of the list. uh, Princess Diana ranked number three, right ahead of Charles Darwin, um, interestingly enough. And Queen Elizabeth uh, I, she ranked number seven, uh, but only ahead of John Lennon. Well, there's a pair. (laughs) But she ranked behind Sir Isaac Newton. So that tells you uh, the eclectic company he's keeping and uh, the person who ranked number two, I would venture to say most Americans don't even know. Oh, well, who would that be? <laughs> that would be a man by the name of Isambard Kingdom Brunel. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, a civil engineer who really changed England by basically designing and helping to build in the early 1800s um, some extremely important uh, pieces of public transportation infrastructure and one of which is the Great Western Railway. And by the way, uh, Brunel was sort of a contemporary of William Blake, although 50 years younger. 
Well, I guess it's to the credit of the British that they highly esteem engineers and poets. I I would shudder to think what would be on the American list. Oh, <laughs> Probably, true. I don't know. I'm not even going to say. But anyway, uh, I can see why Brunel is important. And you're right. I've never heard of him. Well, maybe I have. I just can't remember it all that well. And infrastructure is something I do rely on. We do like streets Indeed. and running water. But all that to say, again, William Blake, although now seated among British dignitaries, uh, was an interesting working class product of the late 18th century, early 19th century. He was born in 1757 and lived until 1827. Now, these, when I start throwing out years, I confuse myself. Actually, when I talk about numbers in general, that is true. I confuse myself. But so what I have to do, I guess lots of people do this, I have to think about the years and then envision what else was going on during that time period so that in my mind I can visually see, okay, what were they wearing, what were their houses looking like, that sort of thing. So when you say 1757 to 1827, the first thing that comes to my mind is 1776 and, of course, the American Revolution. But I guess... Blake would be wearing a red coat. <laughs> I'm not so sure. He might have been part of the opposition because he liked to be opposed to things. And uh, but anyway, and he was a pacifist. Well, he was a pacifist, yes. And uh, but he was also very pro-American. And of course, for our French friends, uh, the year that will jump out to them is 1789, the year that marked the beginning um, of the French Revolution, which is another event that strongly impacted Blake's view of the world. Well, unlike a lot of British poets, uh, William Blake did not come from a wealthy family. He did not go to university. He was lower middle class. His parents were something called hosiers. And I actually had to look that up to make sure I had straight what, if that means what it sounds like it means. And it does. It's a person who sells stockings yes. <laughs> and other things, gloves and, you know, other little knickknacks. So he lived all of his life, except for a couple of years uh, in London, which, you know, he describes in a poem titled London in a very unfortunate way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> I do want a couple, uh, well, quote a couple of stanzas from this famous poem called London. He says this, and this is from the, towards the end of the poem, he, he describes London like this. How the chimney sweepers cry, every blackening church appalls, and the hapless soldier's sigh runs in blood down palace walls. But most through midnight streets I hear how the youthful harlots curse blast the newborn infant's tear and blights with plagues the marriage hearse. <laughs> wow, that is a lot of misery in just a couple of sentences. I mean blood and tears and plagues i know and it, it is true uh but that doesn't mean he didn't love his city i think he really did it's just that he was living not in utter poverty but he was aware of the pain in general of the people around him and these are the kind of images that really pervade a lot of his poetry blake was there's just not a better word to use and he was a visionary 
literally. But he was also anti-colonialism. He was pro-abolition. He was pro-women's suffrage. Well before these reform movements, I guess I can say that without stumbling, were popular in the United States or even in England. True. And that explains why the Americans really discovered him and loved him during our reform period. He spoke to everything that was going on. I I agree. And some would say, although I'm sure this isn't uncontested either, that the Americans caught on to him before really the British did. Uh, This is just an addendum. Gary and I collect old books and we specifically like old textbooks. And I actually have a couple of British textbooks from the 1830s. And I looked him up in them, you know, before we were doing this to say, well, what were people saying about him in the 1830s? And they're not saying anything about him. They talk about his engravings and that's all that was mentioned. And that was only mentioned in the index of my textbooks. Wow. Well, uh, I know we're going to get into a lot about his ideas uh, concerning social reform, which are are really revolutionary and unusual in a lot of ways. But I want to point out that uh, Blake's calls for reform really aren't because he isn't patriotic. I mean, he did love his country. Um, If you uh, recognize the intro music, that uh, incredibly famous British hymn, Jerusalem. Oh, yes. uh, It's often kind of a, uses a second British national anthem. And you may not know that those lyrics were, but they were written by Blake about the wonderful potential Britain had, did have, and does have to be pretty much a utopia. Well, I didn't know Uh, until you told me that Blake composed those words, but I did watch Sir Elton John sing them (laughs) in the crowd with everybody else during William and Kate's wedding ceremony at Westminster Abbey on TV, of course. I didn't score the invite. You weren't there in person? (laughs) No, I I wasn't. I didn't think so. I didn't remember there. Um, Blake, and of course this had everything to do with his religious background, um, as well as his disillusionment with the French Revolution. Uh, But he had a lot of distrust in institutions, particularly the government and the church, um, as we see in this poem. And he uses the term palace, but when he does, he means the government. Uh, He saw the poverty that pervaded the streets in London during this time period, and he recognizes the powers uh, as being responsible to help, but callous to too much of it. And when we read um, Jane Austen's Emma, we got to see a view of elegance and calmness and beauty, and the upwardly mobile middle class was growing. uh, But as we said, it was a a relatively small group. Austen's world was not the reality for almost all of the residents in London. Uh, At the beginning of the 1700s, London had about 600,000 residents, more or less. By the time Blake was born, this number is up to almost a million. It is growing too fast and industrializing. Uh, And this is an enormous amount of people at this time. The second largest city was Bristol, and it only had 30,000. And the rich were a very, very small minority. And Images of poverty were everywhere. Uh, lots of people were out of work because machines were doing more. Uh, and the streets were unsanitary with human and animal waste. And the air was unclean. And for the thousands of homeless uh, or those living in adequate and uh, crowded housing, there was no such thing as employment benefits or social services. School was not even compulsory for children. And For every um, 1,000 children born in London during this time period, almost half would be dead before they turned two years old. 
And that was due to malnutrition and bad water and poor hygiene and really other aspects of uh, poverty. I mean, suicide was common. Executions were public. Violence was rampant. There were um, high numbers of orphans, and they were called foundlings, and the children that had been abandoned by their mothers. And Because being a single mother during this period was just absolutely impossible. You couldn't get a job. You couldn't feed yourself. So um, often it was um, the merciful thing to do to drop a child off at a charity hospital. And London was the sex capital of Europe at this time with large numbers of prostitutes, which is one job available to women. This sounds like a setup for a Dickens novel. Well, it, it absolutely, that's where Dickens got it. And it is interesting to see, you know, Jane Austen was talking about a, the same place from a very mm-hmm. different perspective. And so it is important to see both sides uh, of London, which of course is one of my favorite cities in the whole wide world, but it's not without its challenges today. And it wasn't without its challenges, obviously, back then. And little William Blake from his earliest ages would roam the streets of this city and he would take in all these sites. And even though his family was not starving, they were not rich enough to be isolated. He didn't enjoy the party life of Bath. Uh, he witnessed a lot of that stuff. And these were sites that marked him. They were disturbing. Well, and, and from what we know of him, he is a highly intuitive person, uh, what he himself called imaginative, but he's also highly empathetic. And it appears he feels um, a lot of the pain that he sees and the different people that he meets in this time period. You know, when you read his work, I think, You have to say that he does. And of course, I love that he calls himself imaginative. And when he uses that word imaginative, for me, it's I better understand it as the word creative. That's what he means. But it's not just creative as in I can throw some colors together. He uses it almost in a spiritual way. He was raised in church. He was read the Bible every day, but his parents were separatist, meaning they didn't support the established church, the Church of England. But beyond that, and this very unorthodox, really for the time, religious upbringing, Blake had visions. When I said he was visionary, I meant he literally (laughs) had things. Yes, he saw things as early as age four. There's stories that he saw God's face at his bedroom window. He saw angels sitting in trees at the age of eight. He claimed that he was that he talked to the archangel Gabriel and then he talked to the Virgin Mary. His parents obviously were worried that he was crazy, but Blake, his whole life supported the idea that he was having visions and he never thought he was crazy. He said, this is part of my imagination, which is, as I mentioned, a different way of thinking of imagination. Mm -hmm. And I want to actually quote what he's his exact quote. He says this, you can see what I see if you choose You have only to work up imagination to the state of vision, and the thing is done. So he felt, I mean, the way I read what he said about himself, he feels connected to the material world, to the spiritual world, in a way that is very different from a secular humanist perspective or even a Christian perspective today. Very much so. Um, Well, his parents thought his imagination would be... um, more productively served by putting him in art school. 
Well, that did work out. And it is understandable, uh, which they did do at age eight. And he stayed there for four years until he was 14. But this was expensive and it would have cost his family quite a bit of money. So at age 14, they pulled him out and he became apprenticed to an engraver where he worked and spent seven years learning this trade. And this, of course, is going to be the entire direction of the rest of his life. Now, engraver. When I say that, I think of places like Things Remembered at the Mall, (laughs) where they're putting monograms on a necklace like you might see on Etsy. But that isn't exactly what we're talking about here, although it's a little bit like it. It's not the same thing as an illuminated book. So before we get too far into what he's talking about when he says, I make engravings for the rest of his life, Gary, give us like a two-minute description of what that is. Sure. I mean, uh, it was actually a process that was a couple of hundred years old when Blake got into it, but it's a uh, sophisticated process and actually several processes normally done by several people. Although, eventually, Blake innovated ways that he and his wife could do all of it themselves. Uh, But initially, as in um, the case of Blake, apprentices would go out, copy things in the world with pencil and paper. They would come back and these would be etched on plates with um, acid by other artisans. Sometimes uh, that could be difficult and unpredictable, uh, as you might imagine. And then you'd get ink and rub it into the lines for the intaglio style. You would uh, wipe the surface clean with rags in the palm of your hand. And from there, you'd go to the press and print on paper. But you would use very nice, expensive paper. And now you have to remember these were illuminated, meaning they were in color. So after they were printed, they were colored. When uh, Blake went into business for himself, he made his own watercolors. I mean, uh, every copy of an illuminated book is a unique piece of artwork. And even if the same person made several the same day with the same ink, they wouldn't be exactly alike. No, I'd say they couldn't be. It's very labor intensive. And really, most of it wasn't considered creative. Engravers were artisans uh, more than they were artists. And There were, therefore, the low men on the uh, artistic totem pole, to use that expression. And even though Blake became a member of the Royal Academy, he was never given the glory and the distinction of other types of artists. So there are hierarchies everywhere, even among the artists. (laughs) Of course, they are evolutionary and inescapable. But uh, speaking of social hierarchies, uh, there is a really famous story uh, people tell about Blake working at Westminster Abbey as a young apprentice. He would go in there and copy the statues of the kings and queens of England, as well as um, other Gothic pieces of art. And something you can see uh, influences style when you look at his illustrations anyway. One day, a bunch of boys came in and they bullied him while he was trying to work. So uh, here is a working class boy etching in the abbey when the students from the prestigious Westminster School came in. Uh, it appears they were so mean Uh, that Blake knocked one boy off a scaffold to the ground. And to use Blake's words, he fell with terrific violence. (laughs) Blake um, then went off and complained to the dean about the harassment, and they got in trouble, and they weren't allowed in there anymore. That's awesome. (laughs) Exactly how you want a bully story to work out. The bully gets beat up and gets in trouble from the authorities. And I mean, those kind of stories usually work the other way. (laughs) Well, true. And and he did finish his apprenticeship and could therefore work as a professional engraver himself, which he did. He actually worked for a man named Johnson, who was a um, 
radical publisher of a lot of political materials, including Mary Shelley's mother, Mary Godwin Wollstonecraft, who he uh, actually did an engraving for. Well, one part I like, I want to interject something about him, is in 1782, when Blake is 28 years old, he meets and marries a girl by the name of Catherine Boucher. When he met her, she was illiterate to the point that she signed the wedding contract with an X. However, and this is so sweet, he taught her to read, to write, and to engrave. Oh, well, they had a, a real partnership. They really did. And, well, And they worked together their entire lives. And uh, this is jumping to the end, but on the day of Blake's death, um, it said Blake turned to his wife and said, Stay, Kate. Keep just as you are. I will draw your portrait, for you have ever been an angel to me. And after that, he laid down his tools. He began to sing hymns and verses and promise his wife he would be with her always. And then he died. Uh, he was buried at the dissenters' burial ground. Interesting. And uh, only five people were there. His wife, um, after he died, moved in with one of their friends, and she worked as a housekeeper for the rest of her life. Well, and the word on the street is back then <laughs> that she did have visions of him talking to her and that sort of thing for the rest of her life. And it is kind of a really amazing ending of a man's life and his wife and their partnership. So anyway, ready to move from his life to his ideas and to the pieces of literature that we're reading today. Let's do it. In uh, 1789, Blake printed the first few copies of a series called Songs of Innocence. And five years later, he wrote a complimentary work called The Songs of Experience. And uh, he bound these together with more illuminated plates. And he titled the combined work The Songs of Innocence and Experience, showing two sides of the human soul. Well, for Blake, there were always two ways to see everything in the world. He often would say... And this is such a thing that's not what people say. He would say, truth is always in the extremes. This work, he specifically said, was to see the dualities of life. What an interesting perspective. And there's another great Blake quote where he says, um, The tree which moves some to tears of joy is, in the eyes of others, only a green thing which stands in the way. As a man is, so he sees. Yes, that came out of a letter which Blake talks about imagination, the one that I was re referencing earlier. For Blake, imagination was everything, and apparently he would look around the world and just see things. <laughs> I mean, things that other people absolutely didn't see. As a man is, so he sees, is what he says. And he would draw them, he would paint them, he would write what he was seeing, and he would even seeing them. But, you know, when I say the dualities of life, you know, some people will take that to mean that very cliched kind of glass, half empty, glass, half full kind of thing. But that is definitely not. In fact, if you think that he's saying there's a good side and a bad side to everything, you're missing his point entirely. What he does in songs is he feels so simple and straightforward, and he uses such simple words. There's simple pictures, simple rhymes, but you're, it's kind of like you're supposed to keep looking at it and there's, it's deep. There's more there. There's something nuanced there. There's something complicated in everything. 
Well, if you think about his creative process, um, it makes sense that each word would be thoughtful. Uh, when Blake wrote a poem, he didn't just jot something on a napkin like we would or, or type it into a computer um, where he could backspace and edit at will. He etched it onto metal and he had to do it backwards. So when you printed the book, it would read correctly. Each word was a labor. I mean, each word was thought-filled each page illuminated and decorated with pictures. You know, and that's kind of a misconception I had. I've read his poetry for years in books, and I just assumed that he wrote it out and then later on put it on a piece of metal. It never occurred to me that he was composing on metal. And that does make a difference. I mean, the pictures that he put on these pages, he didn't have a poem, then he went to illustrate it. That's not what these things are. These are not you know, like like I do when I go to the internet and I write something, then I put a, a thing that I found on the internet on the page as a color or a pretty picture to go with it. These were labor intensive. They were creative. They were commentary. They're rhetorical. They're part of what he's saying in the work itself. They complement the words. It's all one thing. The colors, the images, the words, they're all part of a story. And that is what sets him apart is amazing. Um, I know. know, It's so multidimensional. It is. uh, And you should and can look at it. I mean, on our website, we have a link to blakearchives.org where you can see all of these. And I think it's worth going to. If you have any interest in him at all, I mean, why read his poem? And I did this for years. I read his poem not really thinking about the art work as being part of the story for the book songs of innocence he made 31 plates and from those and this is crazy too he only made 17 copies so it's not like there's thousands or millions of editions of these mm, roaming the and, world and what would one edition be worth i wonder i wonder <laughs> well and i'd like to point out this method uh makes things going viral pretty difficult <laughs> i think it makes them impossible for several hundred years but then you can get on the list number 36 if you can last that long the poems are short though and They're meant, and this is something to keep in mind when we get ready to read them, they're meant to resemble nursery rhymes. They have meter, mostly iambic and anapestic, and we've talked about that before, but you're going to have a lot of a beat. They're addressed to children, except they're not for children. They're not intended for children, although they kind of give you that childlike feeling on the surface. They appear naive. And some of them are, and and they appear joyful. The introduction has a narrator who's a piper, happily piping when he sees a child on a cloud. But the poems express innocence, as and this is what he means by innocence. It's a state of happiness and obedience, doing what you're told with no fear or suspicion, which you can already see the vulnerability and where this is mm-hmm. taking you. It's the natural state of childhood. So the poems are mostly about children, a time that we're supposed to be, at best, innocent. These poems are represented as songs. They're called songs of innocence. The word songs connotes things that are happy. And honestly, some people say, a lot of people say, that William Blake put all of them to music, and this has just been lost. (laughs) (laughs) Well, even if Blake didn't, um, in the 1960s, American poet Allen Ginsberg did. Um, Although I wouldn't suggest Ginsberg's were beautiful songs. No, they're not. If you listen to Ginsberg's version on Spotify, they're 
They're unpleasant. They really are. Uh, and in that vein of musical legacy, did you know that you 2 named one of their albums Songs of Innocence and a second one Songs of Experience? No, I didn't know that. But to be honest, after Joshua Tree, I don't know that I could name any other U2 albums, but Ooh, now i got two more going. <laughs> that's bad. I would not I confess that. But, you know, I have heard one lady said that she thinks they may have had a bluesy tone, kind of like what we would see here in Memphis, but out of side. The poems and songs of innocence are full of open spaces, like what they talk about. There's a lot of nature in them. They're seemingly simple, again. But as you'll see from when we read out of songs of innocence, they're not. They're political. They're social. There's religious commentary. So the one we're going to read now, it's called The Chimney Sweeper, and it's from the collection Songs of Innocence. This poem is from the perspective, as they are, from an innocent child. But you can already tell, this child is a chimney sweeper. And a chimney sweeper is one of the cruelest jobs a child could ever have. Gary, just from a political and historical perspective, what would that mean? Well, first of all, this was an age of child labor and child exploitation. So uh, chimney sweeps were part of that. I mean, little boys as young as six were often sold by their parents who couldn't afford to feed them. And then they were sent up uh, dangerous and dark chimneys. And there was a house report on sweeps that came out at that time that illustrated just how dangerous this job was. And especially for children, um, sweets had uh, high rates of cancer because of their exposure to soot. They also had a, a slew of respiratory ailments, as you would guess. And they got a lot of broken bones and just the work itself stunted their growth. And it was a life that would be haunted by death every single day. Well, what you're going to see and what we're going to read is a poem of social protest. In this poem, a child is innocent and he doesn't understand his reality. Blake is going to use a play on words because notice how the word weep, weep, weep sounds an awful lot like sweep, 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 and then sleep. The child's naive innocence is frightening to us as readers because we know more than the child does about what's going on in his reality, and we know that it's wrong. He thinks being sad is normal. We know that it isn't. When we get to the middle of the poem and little Tom Dacker has a dream, we know that he's being sold a false bill of goods. He's been told he just needs to hold out for the next life, and he hangs in there. Just do his duty. The next life will be happy. The last line, if all do their duty, they need not fear harm. This is stated very simply. It's stated cheerfully. But as a reader, you're supposed to get angry. Well, uh, and who is the reader? Oh, I'm glad you asked. That's an excellent question because he answers it right after he says, Weep, weep, he says, so your chimneys I sweep. The child is talking in the second person, the reader, us. We are the people who want clean chill chimneys, and so we're willing to have children sleep in soot to have them. The illuminated plates, by the way, in this poem are of small dancing children. They're a natural extension of the vines and of the leaves. And all the children have this light, happy quality. It's green. And the whole thing looks like a paradise. 
So you can understand when I say that the picture is part of the commentary. This is what the children should be doing, what we should be providing for the children, but it's not what we're reading that we are providing or expecting from them in the poem. All right, I think that's a good setup. Are you ready to read it? Let's just do it three stanzas at a time. When my mother died, I was very young, and my father sold me while yet my tongue could scarcely cry, weep, 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 so your chimneys I sleep, and in soot I sleep. There's little Tom Dacker who cried when his head, that curled like a lamb's back was shaved, so I said, hush, Tom, never mind it, for when your head's bare, you know that the soot cannot spoil your white hair. And so he was quiet in that very night, as Tom was asleeping, he had such a sight that thousands of sweepers, Dick, Joe, Ned, and Jack, were all of them locked up in coffins of black. So what are your thoughts so far? <laughs> well, I mean, it's certainly written in a language of a nursery rhyme. It really is. Um, and you feel pity for the boy. I mean, he's looking for the bright side of getting his head shaved. I and know. The speaker basically says, it's okay. It will keep your hair from being gross. And, um, of course, even today we feel this uh, cringe of guilt because all of us, absolutely agree that this is horrifically wrong, uh, but are also guilty in large part of ignoring the plight of child labor around the world. I mean, in a sense, we're asleep. Well, exactly. That's exactly what Blake is intending us to feel. And as we read the rest of the poem, we're going to get to the part where Tom is going to have a dream. And in the dream, an angel comes with a key. And as we know, we've talked about the symbol and other Uh, pieces of writing, keys are often symbols of freedom. I mean, keys unlock things. Tom's dream is beautiful. The boys dive in the river and they wash away the soot and they play in the warmth of the sun and the word sun is capitalized. But then we get to the judgment of the reader again. The angel speaks and there's irony that we pick up when we hear the words of the angel. He says, if the boy is a good boy, He'll have God as his father, and he'll never want joy. What a play on words. The word want can mean he'll never lack it, but it may mean he won't want it. When we get to the final stanza, of course, Tom wakes up, and it's a dark, cold morning. He's happy with hope, but Blake has already communicated to us that this hope is a false hope. Want to read this part? Yes. And by came an angel who had a bright key, and he opened the coffins and set them all free. Then down a green plain, leaping, laughing, they run, and wash in a river, and shine in the sun. Then naked and white, all their bags left behind, they rise upon clouds and sport in the wind. And the angel told Tom if he'd be a good boy, he'd have God for his father, and never want joy. And so Tom awoke, and we rose in the dark, and got with our bags and our brushes to work. Though the morning was cold, Tom was happy and warm. So, if all do their duty, they need not fear harm. What are your thoughts here? Uh, It's the Greek tragedy where the people in the audience see what's coming, but the actors on the stage don't. I know, and we see who's at fault. You know, he makes God an oppressor here. Ah, Well, the word innocence um, really obviously is being used by Blake to mean some unexpanded consciousness. I mean, the child is innocent because he's not aware, but we are aware. And uh, the condemnation of the exploiters is unambiguous. And Blake is 
heartbroken at the plight of the children around him. I mean, these children um, whom he names uh, represented no doubt of the London children he knew, you know, Ned, Dick, Joe, and Jack. And they're clearly denied the human experience. And uh, although um, his example of child suffering is very specific, it's not hard to extrapolate really across time and space. And um, if that is a song of innocence, I can't imagine what the song of experience is going to be like. <laughs> yeah, he hits pretty hard in the songs of innocence. Well, for one thing, the song of experience uh, that we're going to read is shorter. That poem that you just read is six stanzas. This next one is only three, so that's half the length. But in a lot of ways, it's very similar. We're going to see again this play on words with the sound of weep, weep. There's images of snow, the cold, the black sook that goes with the job of chimney sweeping. The difference in this poem, though, is that now the child is no longer innocent. He knows who's responsible for his plight. So that fake nonsense of the reader listening to the angel is gone. He knows where the blame falls and who did this to them. He knows there's no such thing as an angel. There's no sun. There's not a river. There's no naked innocence. And in this version, there's dialogue. There's dehumanization. The first line, a little black thing among the snow. This is not a racial statement. Uh, He's dirty. He's in the cold. He's crying. Someone asks the child where his parents are, and he responds. Let's read this first stanza. A little black thing among the snow crying weep, weep in notes of woe. Where are thy father and mother? Say. They are both gone up to the church to pray. A couple of things to notice is that this poem has lots of punctuation. Blake makes the reader stop between each word, weep, after mother and father and after woe, but the blame is clear. The responsibility for the desperation of this child falls at the foot of the church. Now, remember, Blake's family were dissenters. They read the Bible for themselves. They knew the truth of Scripture. It was written in the Holy Bible. And it is from this place that we see Blake's rage. How could the organization responsible for implementing Jesus' words, let the little children come to me, or his actions, the only miracle repeated in the New Testament is Jesus multiplying bread, how can this organization use their authority in this way? Let's read the rest of this poem. This poem is frank, and it's very pessimistic. Because I was happy upon the heath and smiled among the winter snow, they clothed me in the clothes of death and taught me to sing the notes of woe. And because I'm happy and dance and sing, they think they have done me no injury and are gone to praise God and his priest and king who make up a heaven of our misery. One of the things to notice is that he uses the pronoun they. They think, but who's they? That's unclear. Who clothed him in clothes of death? His parents? And by the way, what are clothes of death? Well, obviously it seems to me that that soot-covered clothes that's been made black by dirt, and those are the ones that are going to kill him. But they is in the plural. And so the blame is to be spread around. His parents are responsible to keep him clothed and safe. The church is responsible to keep him clothed and safe. But he add, it's a trifecta because he's going to add the word king in there. And I would suggest that's 
deliberate. The king is responsible to keep him clothed in the state and save. The state is equally liable. And all of these institutions are deliberately ignoring what is in the interest of the child to promote their own best interest. The child labor propping up their way of life, that's immoral. It's unchristian, maybe demonic. Well, it implies in its last stanza that they're quite happy to delude themselves in this deal. Um, They think of themselves as good people because they go to church and practice all these good things while ignoring the responsibilities given to them. Exactly. And that takes us to this last line, which is confusing. It's actually what we call a paradox, something that doesn't seem like it wouldn't really make sense. But if you look at it, it kind of does. And look how interesting it is, this turn of phrase, make up a heaven of our misery. They make their lives better. They make their lives a heaven on the backs of the chimney sweepers. And this little chimney sweeper knows it. Well, it seems um, Blake has taken the chimney sweeper and really made him a symbol uh, for how easy it is to turn a blind eye to the exploitation of the poor and the, the helpless in any society in pursuit of our own comfort and luxury. And that's a lesson that, of course, resonates throughout the ages and really across the globe. Indeed, it does. Well, and so in this spirit of uh, conviction inspired by the words of Blake, we're going to close out our time in Regency England, um, as it does delight and challenge us both. Next week, we'll be back on the other side of the Atlantic with F. Scott Fitzgerald (laughs) and the Great Gatsby. That will be a great series. So please join us next week. Uh, But between now and then... Please stop in to see us on any of our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. Visit our website for copies of the poem um, and links to the William Blake archives and, uh, of course, our free listening guides. Well, don't forget to text this episode to a friend. Peace out. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.